electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another CNBC Tech Check Plus live stream. Uh, my name is Brandon Gomez. I'm here with my colleague, Fahima Al-Ali, here today to talk about uh, innovation in AI, a hot topic um, that we've obviously been discussing a lot here at CNBC throughout the news day, as well, specifically on CNBC's Tech Check. Um, and joining us today, we do have two uh, fantastic guests lined up, experts, I would argue, <laughs> um, in this field um, to help us sort of carry through the conversation. So joining us now, I'd love to bring in Haroon Chaudhry, founder of Not A Bot, a daily AI newsletter, as well as Philip Cutler, CEO of educational support company Paper. We'll be expanding the conversation today to talk about the application of AI uh, in terms of ed tech, the education field at large. Uh, so thank you all for, for joining me today. Thanks for uh, having us. Yeah, of course, of course. So. I want to kick things off and and I want to encourage uh, folks as well as they're viewing um, to jump into the conversation, right? If you hear something that sparks an idea, by all means, myself, my colleague Fahima, will be looking at your comments um, on the live stream as well to sort of see maybe what questions you have about the innovation that's taking place within the AI space. But first, Haroon, I, I want to get the conversation started with you. Um, you know, we just said it, AI's gone mainstream. It's been around, but for whatever reason, it's now the hot topic, right? So we've seen all the headlines, investors uh, a bit skeptical, consumers really curious, eager to, to, to jump in. You know, I wanted to, to, to just quickly quote, you know, Morgan Stanley today um, out with some research saying that in every new cycle, we see new bubbles. However, the hype around generative AI may be justified and the technology feels genuinely exciting. I mean, we've seen rapid adoption um, right, ChatGPT reached 100. I'm sorry, 1 million users in just five days, and 100 million in two months after its launch. Right, so just really rapid ad uh, adoption. You know, Haroon, what's causing all the hype right now? Yeah, great question. And you know, I've been covering the AI space for uh, quite a few years uh, at this point. But I think what we've seen over the past few months has been especially just incredible. Um, we've never seen such a big jump in the generality of AI models. AI was always a way of solving very specific use cases. And so it was synonymous with artificial narrow intelligence. So solving very narrow use cases, but we're moving towards a world where these AI models are able to solve many, many different types of problems. And with the advent of things like ChatGPT, which are so easy to use, where you log on, you ask it questions, you get a response, and you can have it do cool things like come up with SQL queries for you to query a database or even write uh, computer programs for you. It's pretty remarkable how we've gotten to a point where these AI models are not solving specific use cases, but they're, they become very generalizable and very useful for everyone from students to uh, professionals and you know, countless industries. And, and you talk about that, right? Like uh, the fact that this, information this technology has been around right but there seems to be this almost like virality of these use cases like there's there is this genuine curiosity um 
do you think that there may be areas where folks didn't realize that they were already engaging with AI that now they're sort of saying to themselves like, hey, I, I actually am more familiar with this than maybe I initially thought? Yeah, I, I think the previous use cases for AI, they were fairly explicit where you would know, know if you were interacting with an AI. And there was attempts at coming up with very good conversational uh, chatbots and things of that sort. I mean, we've all tried Siri out, but I don't know if any of us have really been super impressed by Siri, right? Or, or Alexa or these types of tools. And so we've gotten to a point where the, the AI is so realistic and the responses it gives you are so realistic that uh, they can pass the Turing test and they can deceive folks into thinking that the AI is sentient. And that's a place where a lot of experts, a lot of folks thought that we were, would eventually get to, but of the many exp experts I've uh, especially talked to recently, I think most folks are very, very surprised at how quickly we've gotten to this point. Yeah, and Harun, I, I want to I wanna follow up a little bit here on the, the chat GPT um, explosion, really. Uh, so it launched in November, as, as Brandon said, 100 million users in the first two months of launch. It's the fastest growing consumer application ever, faster than Instagram, faster than TikTok faster than Pokemon Go, um, but you're not new to the space. So you founded Not About, which is a daily AI newsletter, the largest in the world, right? 50,000 subscribers. Um, you have a ba academic background in machine learning and engineering. For those who are watching now that are new to the space, uh, can we just backtrack a little bit? And can you talk a, a bit about the original use case for the AI technology that tools like ChatGPT have made mainstream now? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the use cases used to be very productionally, uh, you know, uh, productiony. Um, so they were used to do things like text-to-speech synthesis or Q&A systems. But we've gotten to a point where these foundational models are very good at just answering general questions. And I think the recent explosion in popularity of ChatGPT is also part, partly due to the fact that the interface is so easy to interact with. Um, even several weeks and months before ChatGPT was released in, I think, November 30th, 2022, which is crazy because it feels like a decade ago that it was released, um, OpenAI had released their uh, GPT-3 model, and that was interactable through their playground, OpenAI's playground. And I was toying around with it for, for quite some time, and I thought it was really cool. But it's really interesting that at that point, it didn't really get nearly the amount of attention that ChatGPT got. And I think a big part of the reason is that there's absolutely no friction to getting up and running with ChatGPT and then getting value out of it. Whereas with GPT-3, I mean, the steps, it was basically you log in, uh, you create an account. I think maybe you were required to set up billing but it was very low friction. But you notice the, the, the massive difference in the popularity of both tools uh, with, with just eliminating a couple of steps of friction in between. And, you know, Phil, I wanna, I wanna turn to you and bring you into the conversation too, because there's a reason why we, we, we have also an expert on education in this, right? So we, we've, we've covered a little bit about the background of chat GPT, but I mean, your background is in education, right? So. There's been a clear uh, early link right now, at least in this use case, um, between AI um, and its use case in the classroom. I mean, listen, right? I think I think Bard is a nod to Shakespeare, uh, right? As an as an English major, um, I sort of see the, the the natural tie in, and so I think that maybe organically there's already becoming this sort of link um, between between education and 
AI application right now. So what's your experience with ChatGPT? How's it being used in education? Um, and, and, and can you explain to us maybe some of the conversations that you're having with folks as they try to navigate this new you know, technology? Yeah, absolutely, Brandon. And I think it's uncharted territory for a lot of us in education to see something that's trending from a technology perspective be so directly applied to our classrooms and in education in such a cool and innovative way that everybody's talking about. I mean, you mentioned the numbers before and how rapid the growth has been for ChatGPT. It's fascinating to see how that's actually sort of manifested itself in education, both K-12 and higher ed. It, the, the thing that I think is really interesting about it is there's really three schools of thought when it comes to chat GPT and the applications there. The first is a number of educators who look at this and say, hey, this is really innovative. This is something that's cool, that's transformative. Let's figure out how to best apply it in the classroom to support our students, to support our teachers. Let's figure out the right way to use this. Then there's a school of thought that says, hey, this is something that's a clear threat. It, you know, it compromises the integrity of the writing that students are doing. It compromises the integrity of the work that our students are submitting. We can't necessarily tell it's done by them. We need to ban it. We need to stop it immediately and sort of you know, not allow this into our classes. And then there's a third school of thought that says, what's chat GPT? And they're not really necessarily aware. Um, but I think it's really interesting to see how the entire education, I was at the FETC con conference a couple of weeks ago, which is one of the largest in North America, it brings together tens of thousands of educators. And there were about three sessions on ChatGPT and all three of them were standing room only. And most of the people weren't even able to get into the room. So it's a topic that's really hot right now in our schools. Yeah, Phil, I wanna, I wanna follow up on that because let's, let's just stay in the positive vein of things now, right? How a program like ChatGPT or AI can be meaningful in schools and create meaningful connections and learning experiences for children um, and foster equitable outcomes, which I know you at Paper are very passionate about. You um, were an educator and um, Paper is very passionate about democratizing education. Do you think this sort of technology has the capability to foster that sort of structural change versus just you know content mastery or improving test scores, but really kind of implementing change that would enable inclusivity in education. I, I do. And I think a lot of people's heads initially went straight to this is a tool that students can use to cheat. Right. And especially in higher ed, there's been a lot of conversation around are students submitting their final papers written by an AI bot or something like that. Um, and that's a whole other, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges around that. But personally, I think this is a huge positive for education. There's two main reasons why I see it being very highly applicable. The first is that you can actually use this to really personalize the experiences that students have. What I mean by that is if you're asking a question for a particular student, there are ways that chat GPT or you know, the GPT generative AI in general can actually tailor that messaging to be something that's of interest to a particular student and really allow them to connect with the content in a meaningful way. And that's something that as a human, we could probably do, but might take hours and hours and hours of work. This is actually simplifying it and makes it something that's really applicable. And the second is actually to figure out lesson plans for our schools and for our teachers that are built around a lot of the AI that you know the students who are in their classes the profiles that are, are, are generated on them and how they learn and what is really interesting and pulling trending topics into it and being able to be a lot more adaptable than we have been in the past. 
to me, these are two areas that I think are pretty low hanging and really applicable today in our schools. And as it becomes more and more baked into our, the way that we train our teachers and we actually expose them to it, we're going to see even more ideas surface. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting is the fact that you bring up the fact that um, you know, educators are going to have to start restructuring their lesson plans and, and you know, the way that they teach. I, I read an article in The Times a couple months ago. Um, there was a, a, a world religion professor who assigned his students a paper uh, at Northern Michigan University, and he gets this paper and he, he, he was quoted saying it was the best paper he had ever read. He's like, hang on a minute. So he confronts the student and the student admitted, I used chat GPT, but it was clean paragraphs, well-structured arguments, you know, well thought out, um, just well thought out overall. Um, and so what he's doing now is that he's completely revamped his, transformed his, um, his teaching style for the semester. So more oral exams, right? Or more, you know, writing first drafts in a classroom, nothing's really gonna be typed. I wanna, I wanna dive into that a little bit with Haroon and then Phil, I'd love for you to jump in as well. You know, this idea of, of professors redesigning their courses entirely um, and how academic institutions are, are going to respond. But this worry about plagiarism, it's a real thing. There are legal implications here. We saw the chat bot, chat GPT bot passing the medical licensing exam, you know, passing the, the, um, the exam for an MBA at Wharton um, and, and tons of other examples of that. Um, the space is already a bit rife with these issues. Haroon, where do you see this going in terms of regulation, right? Because you don't, you don't want to compromise the advancement of this technology or censor it. Um, so what's, what's the answer here? Where do you see this going? Yeah, that's a several billion, maybe trillion dollar question. It, it's a really <laughs> tough one to answer. And, 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 you know, it's, uh, I think what it comes down to is we don't even have a good model for tracking ownership of these models uh, of these uh, uh, ml models that is uh, you know there, there's questions as to who actually should own an ml model like a stable diffusion or a chat gpt is it the folks that are creating the training data um, at the very foundations of the model that the models are trained on is it the folks creating the applications um, is it the folks creating the models uh, it, it's a really tough question to answer and so i think one of the big questions that uh, technology firms, uh, what we'll have to figure out is how do we figure out how to track in each ML model where the training data is, like wh what the training data is that the ML models have been trained on. And so um, ML models are famously uh, labeled as black boxes because it's difficult to know how they come up with the answers that they come up with. And this is one of those situations where it kind of uh, makes it very difficult for us to answer these types of questions. So once we figure out the, uh, the, the ownership structure, um, who, who's actually contributing to each of these models, I think we can eventually get to a world where we become creative about uh, compensating folks who are contributing to models that eventually companies are monetizing and incentivizing folks to include data in, into their models. But right now it kind of feels like stealing, right? Because the, the folks that are creating this artwork and creating the, the, these uh, sets of input data, they're not really being compensated at all. And so you're seeing a lot of backlash as a result of that. Where policymakers come in, I think they're gonna have to lead the way in just determining how we think about this ownership structure. Um, I think they're gonna have to listen to how folks are uh, perceiving it, uh, listen to the various schools of thought, and eventually just come to a decision. Um, I don't have strong opinions on this right now. Right now, I'm just listening to conversations from uh, 
all sides of the spectrum, but um, it'll be a really tricky, but really, really important problem for us to solve. Yeah, I, and, and, and you know, it's funny, Fahim and I were talking and that's why we're both sort of, you know, co-moderating this conversation. This really came to the forefront when I was talking to a, a friend who works in publishing and she was talking about the generation and the use of AI to create cover art. And so the, the, the debate um, about the use of that, but then also saying to, you know, the author, you know, great, we would love to illustrate a, 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 a cover for you that was not generated by AI. We're going to have to charge 40, 40 bucks a book <laughs> as opposed to, you know, the 1999 um, and, and getting it on the bookshelves because we're using uh, AI generated art from stock images. But I feel like every industry, like what you're saying, is going to have to figure out, okay, like what do, what is our use case? And like, what does regulation look like for us? And Phil, that's where I would love to turn to you because I know that you're having conversations um, within education, right? Like what, what issues, you touched on them a little bit, but like what issues beyond, you know, maybe including, but beyond plagiarism um, and, and, and ownership of thought um, are being raised in education when it comes to AI regulation. I mean, when it comes to, you know, the conversation that might be happening on Capitol Hill in the next one, three, five years around AI, what does education actually want? Well, the, the plagiarism piece, I think, is the one that surfaces first, right? And for a lot of the most obvious reasons, right? Students are always trying to find ways to take advantage of technology and, and so on. Um, in, in my eyes, really, there's not an enormous difference between what that technology does and the calculator. And so we've had to evolve the way that we leverage technology in our classrooms in order to be able to actually use some of that technology to advance the way that we learn and make education just more equitable and accessible, right? A calculator is a very powerful device. I know it's a small, you know, most of us take it for granted. It's an application in our phones, but it's actually something that made math a lot easier for so many folks and allows us to learn calculus and all these other, um, you know, math topics that require sort of this computational power. And so it can be viewed as a threat. And, and I think initially that's what a lot of the concern has been when it comes to sort of like a chat GPT or AI in education is like, oh my goodness, right? Like this is going to be a, a tool used to cheat. Well, no, we can actually use this to enhance the learning experience. Now, I think there's serious questions around, you know, the data sets and, you know, what's included, what's not, right? When you're asking, um, you know, something like chat GPT questions, there's a bias. Right, there is some some data that's trained this, and and um, we've seen it. Right, I know initially the the um, you know uh, news that was included was up to a certain date. So if you asked about things that had happened, you know that were trending recently, it wouldn't necessarily have an understanding of that. Well, that shapes the way that the material or, or the content that it produces actually looks and feels. And so what we use to train is critical. And look, content and, and curriculum is a very, very hot topic in schools across the country, and it should be, right? Every community wants to choose the right content for, for their children, for their students, for their community. Um, and that may not be the same in every single place. And so, um, you know, when you introduce this type of technology, this AI technology into your schools, you are bringing in some of that content and curriculum, and you need to be mindful that there is some bias built into that. Again, I don't think that that should discourage the use of it. I think it, we should be encouraging it, but we just need to be mindful of what's out there. Yeah, and I mean, you just you don't want to replicate the biases that exist in other technology, right? I think that that's what we try to avoid in the development of new technology. 
Um, whether it plays out that way, um, you know, time will tell here. Um, but I think that that's a really interesting point. I mean, um, I think about, you know, who also is, is sort of leading the conversation right now. Like we've been talking about, there have been platforms that have existed, um, but now we have a lot of big tech players that are, that are um, you know, leading the charge here, Microsoft, Google. Um, Harun, I wanna turn to you because I get this sense that there's almost this lack of confidence sometimes, um, especially of late in big tech's ability to, 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 to deliver on some of these innovations. Um, I think about it, uh, the way I describe it is sort of like the post-meta world, right? Like meta made a huge promise to us that we were all gonna be living in the metaverse. And we, that may still be the case in you know, some time, but I don't know that it's the case now or it hasn't been delivered as quickly as maybe the company said that it would be. Um, that's just one example, right? There are plenty of others. Um, NFTs, right? There was the bubble that we saw there. Crypto, we're still figuring out you know, what's happening there in terms of regulation with everything that's unfolding with FTX. Now we're on AI with Google, Microsoft uh, in the driver's seat. Is there a lack of confidence from consumers that the big tech names can actually pull off and deliver on what they're promising? Yeah, a great question. I, I think this is probably a, a bit different from the NFT, the, the, the crypto bubbles that we've seen, um, only because the, the, the real value is being uh, is being realized by by the end consumers and it's very immediate right it's providing a lot of utility to folks uh, immediately not to say that web3 and, and crypto don't but um i, I think it's a, it's kind of a different uh situation with tools like chat gpt and and all the derivatives um that have been created as a result and so I think, you know, we're seeing also Microsoft's, uh, you know, Bing AI, there's been a ton of document, uh, documented cases of it hallucinating in the past couple of days and just providing ridiculous responses uh, with some attitude as well, which is uh, kind of funny to see. Um, I think this is kind of a side effect of the competition we're seeing in the space. I mean, we're, we're seeing OpenAI and Microsoft go head to head with, you know, now Google and Anthropic. Um, there's character AI in the mix. There's other uh, companies that are uh, competing and uh, a whole ecosystem of new tools being created um, as derivatives. And so there's a huge push and a huge pressure to try to get things out of the door very quickly. And I think OpenAI and Microsoft really led the charge with this. And, and um, you saw it last week, just last week, where um, I think Google had slated a event to talk about their new search engine on Wednesday. And I, you know, it, it's documented that the event wasn't a huge success. There was a few slip ups as well. Um, and then Microsoft and and um, and OpenAI, they actually uh, kind of hijacked the spotlight and uh, they ended up uh, hosting a surprise event on Tuesday just so they can announce Bing AI ahead of time. And so you're seeing these timelines become so, so accelerated. Um, these companies just trying to get stuff out of the door, um, just into the hands of consumers, which they know are really just crazy about AI right now. And really just the the, the, the attention we're seeing towards AI space is enormous and, and, and these companies wanna capitalize on it. And I think this is really just the cost of shipping really quickly, um, is that there's a lot of hallucinations that we're seeing uh, with, with these AI models, where we're seeing a lot of you know errors, um, some egregious, some, some fairly harmless, uh, but, 
in the end, I, I'm not too worried about it. I, I think in the next few years, uh, we're going to see a lot of these things resolved. Um, uh, OpenAI has already uh, been been leading the charge when it comes to this, uh, you know, RLHAF, which is uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback, where they uh, have human labelers uh, kind of train their uh, foundational models to avoid these hallucinations and just going completely off track. And so these models are only going to get better and better and better at this. But I do think that the value that's being uh, realized is, is very real uh, right now. Um, and so I think uh, I, I'm not so worried about um, the uh, big tech companies not delivering. It's just a matter of at what point are we going to see these mistakes uh, mitigated to a point where they're fairly negligible? I don't think we're there yet, but we are moving towards that direction pretty quickly. That actually leads me to our final question for you both. Um, Haroon, you kind of led me to this perfectly. You mentioned that surprise Tuesday event uh, in Redmond, Washington. I was there at that event um, and the energy in that room was electric. Sam Altman and uh, Satya Nadella, of course. I was actually also there with uh, with our anchor, John Fort, and he asked Satya about this idea of worker displacement, which is something that folks are very nervous about with AI, AI technology. Uh, we've seen some leaders, I, I saw a tweet, you know, one guy tweeted, and I think you also retweeted this, Haroon, that he replaced his entire five-person marketing team with ChatGPT. Um, a bit crass, but you know, this is the reality of what's happening. Um, and when John asked Satya, you know, that, that same day, you know, what do you what, what do you think about this worker displacement threat? Is this a real threat? Um, you know, his answer was we're just gonna need to reskill folks and you know there's gonna be new jobs that are gonna be uh, that are gonna have better wage support. But you know, you've experienced this in your own family, seeing how technology can can disrupt things. Um, do you think that new jobs will outpace the rate of displacement? How do you see this playing out? Yeah, that's a great question, Fahima. So, and I don't mean to sound pessimistic here, but I, I don't necessarily see a world where we see new jobs outpace the amount of jobs that are being replaced. And, and I know that this is a tale as old as time where people are afraid that technology is going to replace a whole host of new jobs. And then in the end, everything works out. There's a new equilibrium and everyone uh, lives happily ever after. I think in this case, it does seem a bit different because we've never seen this jump in generality of these models, right? And um, like the tweet that you mentioned, uh, we're seeing this left and right. A lot of folks are replacing uh, whole teams just to subscribe to, uh, you know, uh, what is it, like $40 a month software, uh, or maybe even free if you're using a free version of uh, ChatGPT, um, to accomplish uh, a lot of the same work that those folks were doing. And so uh, we're seeing this happen left and right. Um, I, I think these models, also one of the surprising things, and I talked to a few experts from, uh, you know, Mark Cuban, the co-founders of Hugging Face, and, and folks that are really building uh, incredible applications uh, in the AI space or investing in AI companies. Um, one of the things that they all seem to be surprised about is we've all had this theory that AI wasn't going to replace human creativity and that human creativity was going to be this thing that was always going to be protected. And that was going to be the human role to play in the human AI sort of relationship. And 
we've realized over the past few months that that is completely out of the door, right? I mean, we're seeing uh, technologies like Stable Diffusion, Midjourney, um, uh, Dolly. Uh, it's it's they're doing stuff that is incredibly creative, and uh, companies like Runway um, are are creating videos uh, that are so so impressive, and they're able to edit videos in real time in a really impressive way that would have taken days or weeks for uh, human uh, uh, editors to do, and so. I am, I will say, uh, cautiously uh, optimistic that we'll figure out a new normal and what that looks like. But I'm not exactly sure if the amount of jobs that are created is going to outpace the amount of jobs that we're going to lose. But I do think that the first step that everyone has to take is just educating themselves on the space, what's happening in the space, how things are changing. And, um, you know, like in education, teachers are learning to adapt to the new normal, I think everyone is going to have to learn to adapt to the new normal. And uh, that's part of why I think education is the first step, just understanding what's happening in the space so that you can stay a uh, step ahead. And, and and there is where I want to give Phil the last word to you in that, um, you know, we are talking about, right, you said the three schools of thought, and you mentioned adoption and integration as one of those schools. And like, how are we going to do that? So for you, um, you know, what do we want to see from AI in the classroom? Um, what do we want to see from AI in terms of its integration um, into 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 the daily life there? Well, I think that there's two there's two things to touch on here. The first we've spent a bit of time talking about, which is really the application around learning, right, and how this is going to be integrated into the classroom to help students learn or to help teachers create content that can help students learn. Um, but if you actually bring it back to the purpose of schools and the real foundation to why our schools exist, it's really to prepare our students for life after school, right? Why does math matter? Why does is, why is our English language arts matter? Well, they matter because those are subjects that we think are skills that folks are going to need in the workplace later on in life. And so as we talk about sort of the shifting of jobs and, you know, potentially how AI can replace a lot of the roles, whether it's marketing or, or other things, right? Um, we have to, as a school system, also evolve the way that we're preparing our students for life after school. And you think about like career and college readiness and the fact that, you know, um, they, they said something like 85% of the jobs that we're going to have in 2030 didn't exist in 2018, right? And so the, the preparation that we put our students through to prepare them for life after school is going to have to be different, knowing that we have this type of technology that's emerging and evolving and, and rapidly evolving, really. Um, so the way that we're preparing our students has to change. And, you know, across the U.S., we're seeing fewer and fewer students going to four-year colleges, a lot of them going to technical and vocational schools. We have a lot of students going directly into the workforce or taking part in these boot camp programs to get them sort of skills that are really employable. I think our, we have to understand the role that AI is going to play in changing that workforce and the future of, of work and make sure our schools adapt the way that they're training folks and you know, our students for life after school. So I really do think it's something that's top of mind. I'm seeing it in my conversations with school districts on a daily basis, because this is what their communities are asking of them. They're hearing the same news that we all are, and they're looking around saying, wait, is my job gonna be replaced? Am I gonna be relevant? Is my child gonna be relevant? Are they gonna be employable? So these are things that we need to be thinking about as, as a school system, as educators. Yeah, and listen, I'll tell you from a media standpoint too, those those headlines, those conversations are always at the forefront of, of families' minds. They're, you know, often um, the most 
clicked on red stories is about education and preparation because like you said the conversation really does start at that at that level and it, it's what carries the conversation like how are we preparing folks um, to jump into the workforce um, how are we preparing our students so i think that that really does set us up nicely as a beginning believe it or not 30 minutes into this conversation of a much larger conversation but but we'll end it there i do want to thank you both for joining us um, for a very very important conversation today phil cutler ceo and co-founder of paper and haroon chaudhry founder of not a bot uh, daily ai newsletter i also want to thank my colleague fahima for co-leading this conversation with me um, hats off to you and thanks to all of you at home um, who have tuned in, commented, been a part of the conversation. This is one that we will continue here at CNBC and definitely here on uh, CNBC Tech Check Plus. So thank you again and have a great rest of your day. Three great words, free fries Friday, especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bottom up, up, up. Bell one time on Friday, participating McDonald's through 12 31 excludes tax, must update rewards.